discuss the competitive side of the game. My name is Charles. With me are Richard and a special guest, Young Du Kim. Young is coming back for the second time to the podcast. You may remember him previously on the Watcher in the Water episode. How are you doing, sir? I am doing fantastic. I'm happy to be back with these amazing goobers <laughs> in Canada. So. Thanks for joining us today. The topic will be the Spider Queen, and we have some lists to share with this profile. And then in our open topic, we'll be talking about terrain tactics. Just a few quick questions to catch up. Uh, last time when you were on the podcast, you were known as the Moria guy. So what other armies have you been working on or playing at events since then? Yeah, uh, so yeah, I transitioned from Moria after nearly playing uh, 500 straight games of them. I got burnt out. So I switched to playing pure Dark Denizens of Mirkwood. I made two different versions of that army, and I played one of them at a, a competitive event. And then I switched to pure Mordor, where I took no casters or like no Nazgul, just orc captains and the Mouth of Sauron. Then I played a pure Lothlorien army, which was horrible, but it has potential. And then now I'm working on a rangers army with a little bit of hobbits in them. So That's awesome. So I guess because today we're talking about the Dark Denizens of Mirkwood, when you played them, what was... What would you say is like your first impression when you play the army? Like, what did you think and what did you like about him? Yeah, uh, I would say this is where my thoughts will conflict with the more steeped competitive players because coming from a Moria background, and I'm sure both Charles and Richard know because they both play Moria, because we have access to giant spiders, I think they're one of the most point efficient warrior in the game. It hits hard, he moves fast, he ignores terrain. And looking at the denizens up front, it kind of blew my mind. More people weren't playing them. Uh, I know might is the issue because they lack it. But just from looking at the profiles and the army list, it immediately struck me as this army, I think, can be played competitively if you have a little bit of a high risk, high reward and gambling playstyle, because the army moves tremendously fast. It's ridiculous how many opponents, they know how fast 10 inches is, but when your whole army moves 10 inches and they ignore all terrain and the fell works have fell sight, your opponents are just confused. So yeah, my first impressions was the army was definitely underappreciated. And I made a whole like YouTube videos explaining the army a bit and doing some battle reports and making two whole armies. Because I'm trying to encourage people to look past, you know, might and look past these foundational armies and look for more of these subcategories because the hidden gems, in my humble opinion, although I haven't won an event with them yet, I still placed quite high with them. And I believe out of my most recent 30 Dark Denizen games, I only broke three times. So they're a hard army to break. Yeah, I think um, what you said was really true is that it's it takes a certain play style. I know Ian and Alex aren't with us today, and they're the type of players that always want to balance their list, you know, have some infantry, have some heroic march, a few heroic striking heroes and stuff. I guess this list makes it hard to do that. You have to kind of think out of the box, and even your list building is kind of out of the box. So I think that's what makes it tough on a lot of players, especially, I think, newer players, because, you know, you can't follow the cookie-cutter build. 
Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a Pure Dark Denizens list locally or anywhere. I don't know if I've ever seen one played pure in any tournaments I've been to. So I can definitely see that it's underappreciated. And it's interesting, we'll talk about it more later, but just how on the surface a glass cannon army, but you're also saying that it is hard to break. It just seems like it's like an army that's, when played right, can be really scary. And, you know, it might be an army that requires higher skill to play well as well. But let's move on to the Spire Queen profile, and then we'll talk more. I thought I ordered that nest to be destroyed not two moons past. We cleared the forest, as ordered my lord. But more spiders keep coming up from the south. They are spawning in the ruins of Dunkledore. The Spider Queen is a hero from the Dark Denizens of Mirkwood army list. It is a named hero, a hero of valor at 115 points base. She has the Spider, Mirkwood, Monster, Inventory, and Hero keywords. She's Movement 10, Fight 6 with a 6 plus shoot, Strength 6, Defense 4, 2 attacks, 3 wounds, Courage 4, 3 might, 3 will, 0 fate. War Gear, she has Large Venomous Fangs, Heroic Actions, she has Heroic Strike and Heroic Defense. For Special Rules, she has Monstrous Charge, Swift Movement, Terror, Venom, and Progeny, which during any point in her move phase, Spider Queen may spend any number of remaining will points to summon a Broodling. For each will point spent in this way, place a single Broodling base anywhere within three inches of the Spider Queen, but not in base contact with enemy models. Broodlings may move and charge on a turn in which they were summoned. Broodlings are not counted when working out if a force is broken. And a Broodling has a um, keyword Spider, Mirkwood, Infantry, Warrior, they're also move 10 uh, with a fight 2, strength 3, defense 3, 1 attack, 1 wound, and courage 2. Overall thoughts on this profile? I know that we see it mostly as an allied hero, and because generally we don't see Dark Denizens of Mirkwood played pure very much, as we discussed earlier. I think that the Spider Queen is taken mostly, well, I wouldn't say most of the time, but a lot of the time, because of the Broodlings mechanic because it's the only model in the game that has anything like this, where you can spawn models next to it and then be able to move and then charge again. Would you guys agree? Yeah, I definitely agree that the progeny and the broodlings are an appealing factor. I would also venture to say she's just a cost-efficient monster, so you unlock the three, you know, all the brutal power attacks. And not only that, you have an amazing striker. Even though she lacks the fate, she's cheap for being a monster who can strike and defend at the same time. Yeah, I think being like a monster is great, but she also has like the monster's charge. So that that adds even more additional utility. But I think, like Yon said, like she's just a really good value profile. And um, like we also discussed in the Matt Iverson episode with monsters, you know, she has the three might. And I think that's the key thing because, you know, just having the monster keyword usually isn't quite good enough. But her having might, a uh, move 10, you know, and having swift movement, just even with her big base size, she can get to places. She's a really great hero assassin. And, and yeah, like the Broodling special rule, like that effectively with the 10 inch move, and then the Broodlings can also move 10 inches. That gives you an effective like 23 inch threat range, which, you know, on a four by four board is absolutely ridiculous. That's half the board right there. I don't think I've ever noticed this, but the Broodlings themselves don't have swift movement, right? 
So you do have to be a little, maybe a little bit careful after you place them to make sure you can get them to the objective or tag the model that you want them to tag. But being able to move in the exact same move phase after the Spider Queen has moved, Richard brings up a good point of the threat range. I guess in situations like seize the prize, you can grab the prize the first turn. When you're facing against siege engines, sometimes your opponent might not expect it, but you can move a broodling basically halfway across the map and you can disable certain models that would not be effective if they were in combat. In those situations, the broodlings basically can win you the game. As well as just being able to maybe wrap around the spear support or trap models for the spider queen or for your army. There's just so many things you can do with it. And even a really experienced player, a lot of the times cannot predict what you're going to do with your broodlings. And there's no time for them to react because it happens the exact same turn that the Spider Queen moves. Yeah, and uh, just to add on, like, similar to the Gulabar profile, like, the Spider Queen is just a glass cannon. Like, you know, she has re-rolls to wounds, strength six, monstrous charge. So she's a crazy killer, but her weakness is supposed to be her defense, which is defense four and no fate. But that kind of is offsetted a little bit by the fact that she has heroic defense. So I, I actually find that once combat hits, it's not too bad. It's it's generally shooting and specifically siege weapons that you're probably really, really scared of when you're playing the Spider Queen. But aside from those things, once she gets in combat, like I'm not even that worried about the D4. Well, I would say too for the Spider Queen, even though she's D4, I think the biggest thing is as a skilled player, you'll never have her in a bad position where you're worried about that. Like the D4, the zero fate is supposed to make her, that's her weakness, right? Obviously it's a weakness, but if you're just good at positioning and make it hard for your opponents to reach her, you're never going to be positioned where you're like, okay, I'm scared. She's going to lose some wounds unless you throw her into the midst of the enemy battle line and hope for the best. I'm never really concerned when I play with the Spider Queen. It's a bit different when you play Denizens pure. When you ally her, she's probably not your leader. You can be balls to the walls. I'm going to throw her at your face. That's it. I can assassinate this hero or kill that siege weapon. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think with the heroic defense especially too, it's deceiving. Even though she has strike, she can also just be that massive anvil that, let's say, Aragorn charges. Okay, I have three turns to call defense. The turn you lose it, I can just hurl you back and now you can deal with me again. Okay, so next we're going to just give our final verdicts for this profile. And... I think in the history of this podcast, we haven't given tens to very many heroes. I am pretty tempted to give Spider Queen that score, just for all the reasons that we uh, discussed. And I think the only times that I wouldn't say that Spider Queen is a good pick is if your army doesn't have like a convenient alliance option with it. So like if it's like Red Alliance, for example... Or the other reason is if your army bonus is like the core of your army and you can't really build a strong list without it. So like, for example, like back on the Goblin King episode, Ronan was a guest on that one and he allied the Spider Queen into a Goblin Town list. I think that's a very interesting list, but I don't know if that's the best way to play Goblin Town. So in those situations, she might not be like the number one pick, but I always think that a list with a Spider Queen, as long as it's not an impossible alliance, it adds a very serious threat, serious punch to your list. So I would be okay with giving her a 10. Uh, I'd definitely give her, I think, a 9, just because all the points we made, she is almost a perfect candidate, but it's also like a double-edged sword. Where if you're not too cautious with her or you don't know what the true potential is, 
you could just waste basically 115 points because as Richard said previously, she has no fate. A single seizure thing can just kill her outright or the Blade of the Dead. So I give her almost a 10, I think nine average. I'd say 10 would go to probably Suladon in my opinion, but that's just, that's just me, so. To me, uh, she's a dime, perfect 10. I also gave Suladon a 10, so they're up there. And as someone who makes a lot of like alliances, these are the two profiles that I have to look at. And unfortunately, they're red with each other or else I would be taking them both. But sadly, it's not to be. But I, I actually find myself a lot of times going with the Spider Queen instead. I think just the flexibility, how she is so good at any fighting scenario because of her raw stat line. So she can always kill. She can kill uh, warrior models. She can assassinate heroes. And in objective scenarios, I don't think there's any profile in the game that's as valuable as her. So I think just her utility, I don't know, is off the charts for me. Like there's rarely any game or any matchup that I'll come across where I'm like, uh, I don't know if like she's worth her points. Maybe I should have taken something else instead of her. Like I, I'm usually pretty happy that, you know, I went with her. Yeah, I think most of the time people in competitive lists will ally her for the utility, multiple utilities that she brings. Whenever you see her in a list of a really competitive player, it's almost like they look at the list like, okay, I know how to deal with this threat and then this threat. Oh, wait, they have a spider queen. Never mind, you know, because like you can get away with like not having a heroic march sometimes because you have the spider queen's mobility and, and movement and gimmicks. And so like it makes armies that have a weakness a lot harder to counter if they ally in the spider queen a lot of the times. Okay, so we're going to move on to four different army lists today. We have a 500-point list, a 600-point list, and two 800-point lists. So we'll go in order of the points, and then we'll kind of give our opinions on each of the lists, and then afterwards we'll rank them, we'll decide which one of them is our favorite today. So the first list is a 500-point list, and it comes from Ian. Ian couldn't be with us today, but I'll go over it and sort of summarize what his intention was with this list. So he has uh, the Mouth of Sauron as his leader on an armored horse. And he's leading nine Moran and Orcs with shield, three Moran and Orcs with spear and shield, and one Moran and Orc with shield and a banner. The second Warband is Shelob. And then he allied in Dark Denizens and Mirkwood Spider Queen with four giant spiders. So that's 500 points, a total of 20 models, 11 dead to break, and five might. So the idea of his army is to send in his heroes. So Shelob, Mouth of Sauron, and the Spider Queen, and then also the giant spiders in the Spider Queen's warband into combat to do most of the fighting. And his idea was to have the Moran and Orcs in the Mouth of Sauron's warband just hang out behind the spiders to zone and prevent traps so that the enemy can't come around and trap the spiders. And then also keep the banner just protected in the center of his battle line. Basically, I think what he's going for is keep his Orcs back so that it's not as easy to break him. Because like half his army is out of combat, while the other half he's just throwing in. So that's the general idea. What do you guys think? So at first I was like, wow, you have a lot of hard-hitting units. You know, the Queen with Shelob is two huge threats you can't ignore at 500 points. And the Mouth is a good magic support. Because I played Shelob before and the Spider Queen. And I played all three heroes before. I think regardless, I would be a little bit hesitant just because the body count is so low, because you're fitting in all those basically monsters plus the caster. I think even though the queen and all of them are so mobile, 
in a let's say one matchup you play against a shooting army they'll just kill your Moranins. what will you do then i think it just lacks the number i think it's very unique i think it hits really hard i think if piloted correctly i like the general concept you said of the Moranins centerfold don't keep the spiders trapped you know the heroes push forward regardless the queen has three dice right if you have to burn might just to win the fight that's already bad you only have five might in the army and then Shelob has no might. If you whiff, that's it. And now if she loses the priority, she gets charged. She got one dice. You better hope to God you rolled the six. The mouth, solid dude, can't strike. So in the whole army, you got a single striker who's the spider queen. And she has three might. And if she uses any of those might just to win the fight, you're down calling a defense. You're down calling a strike. So I think this is a very high risk army. I think it will cause serious concern to inexperienced opponents. But at the same time, the glaring weakness for me is body count. Um, I play spiders a lot too. So four giant spiders are great. They're not going to do that much when you don't have other units supporting them. Because 11 Moranins, that's cool and all. But I've played games with four Venombacks and having 25 Moria Goblins. That is, I think, how you do it. This one, I like the idea, though. I think against certain armies, against elite armies, they'll have to consider because you have a fight seven Shelob, the fight six Spider Queen, and then the mouth is still a generic fight five captain. He's a pretty good fight value. Yeah, I'm kind of with Yang here. I'm not 100% sold on the hero selection. Like, I'm not sure exactly what Shelob is doing here, except, like, okay, it's themey because she's also a spider. <laughs> There's not much of a synergy that I see here. Like, Shelob, Spider Queen, four spiders, and the Mouth of Sauron is not good enough of a fighting line, I think. Especially if you're going to put your Moranins, like, keep them out of combat a little bit. You know, say if you come up against, like, a Rivendell or an Elf List. I'm not sure you can really break through that line with those kind of heroes because, you know, the mouth and the spiders are going to be outfought and, you know, probably outdiced too if they have banners. So, yeah, and Shelob being your only fight seven doesn't have strike and only one attack base. So, I don't know. I think it's okay. Like, you got like a lot of defense six and you got some hitting power with the spiders. But, yeah, I'm not exactly sure where the synergy in this list is. Yeah, I agree with what both of the guys said. I think if you wanted this idea to work, I'm almost thinking that you should do about, if your body count is about 20, then you should have like maybe seven or eight orcs maximum, and then put the rest into the spearhead, into the attacking force. Because if your offensive unit is wiped out, you're going to lose anyway. So I wouldn't even keep it 50-50. I would do a little bit less than half orcs. And maybe even like orc trackers or something really cheap, you know? Moranin Orcs, I think, is very expensive to sit in the back and just shield or not do anything. So I would do, like, maybe five or six-point Mortar Orcs and only take, like, seven of them. And then put the rest into Giant Spiders, maybe even a Bat Swarm, because the Shelob is a lot more scary with a Bat Swarm. A Bat Swarm adds two more dice. It halves the opponent's fight value, so not having Strike doesn't matter if you throw in Shelob and a Bat Swarm together into a combat. So I would try to put in, like, maybe two more Spiders and a Bat Swarm. I haven't done the points, so that might actually be um, too many points. But my point is that I would take a little less orcs in favor of one or two more spiders and a bass. I think that would be a more scary list. All right, this probably won't fix the list at all, or it'll, I think, help a little bit. If you're getting all those Moranins for shield and spear, I would just say, screw it. Let me just replace them all with Black Numenorian so they'll all fight for. They cause terror, and so your whole army has like a terror wall. 
So that can help a bit more with that shielding concept. Like you can surround your spiders and now they can't just tag them. They'll have to take more terror checks. And at least your whole army would be a flat fight for. Yeah. And then just to add on to that, you could even swap out Shelob for like the Witch King or something. So you get a uh, Harbringer, like uh, your whole army is terror too. And that makes your numbers a little bit better because, you know, if people can't charge you, then it, it's kind of a model multiplier. Yeah. Honestly, Shelob combined with the Mouth of Sauron is pretty much in the range of a Witch King on Felbeast. And I think Witch King on Felbeast would have a similar role, right? He's better in support, like Richard said, with the Harbinger, and he's the extra threat that you want. So that could be what you would do to improve the list. The second list we're going to go over is a 600-point list, and it's one that I wrote up today. So it is also a Mordor and Dark Denizen. So the first warband is the leader. It is the Betrayer on horse, and he's leading one Wargrider with shield, throwing spear, and banner. And then we have in Dark Denizens and Mirkwood, the Spider Queen, 12 giant spiders, two Mirkwood spiders, and one bass swarm. So it's 598 points, 18 models, five might. So the idea of this list is pretty obvious. The Betrayer, I took him for his Master Poison rule. So I've never seen a list where people have used spiders with the Betrayer, but I checked the rules and I don't think I've seen anything that says you can't. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea is basically to have the spiders benefit from the betrayer's ability and re-roll all their two-wound rolls as if they were all venom backs. Betrayer also just brings a little bit of magic support, but this list is pretty straightforward. It's a just charge forward list and basically rely on the betrayer's poison for the spiders to be uh, efficient when they roll to wound. And, and that's about it. I think the Betrayer being only on a horse is not really a magic threat, but I would hope that the Warriors in itself are their own threat because they're all strength five with a reroll to wound in combat. Thoughts? I think this is an interesting one. I think you have quite the mobility. Everything is at least a move 10. And I think with the Betrayer, you're going to hit like a truck. I think the issue is you're going to come up essentially as uh, one fighting hero in this list. And at 600 points, that's doable. But I think if you come up against several fighting brawly heroes, that kind of might put you in a bit of a bind. But yeah, you, you have the Bat Swarm, so you have some additional utility and the two Merkwood Spiders to threaten the Paralyze, which I think is important. So I think you do have some tools to deal with it. I mean, I think this could work. Well, what I like about the Spider Queen that we didn't mention in the profile review is even though shooting is also a weakness, the progeny, the having the threat range of the Broodlings, you can charge archers, and especially if they're playing as good side, where you can actually clog up their shooting lanes to not be able to shoot you in a clear line of sight. It might be through their own models or through a combat or something. So I do think shooting probably is still a bit of a weakness for you. Like if Betrayer on the horse goes down, then that might spell a bit of trouble. But I think overall, I think you got some tools to make it a fun game. So I think it's really interesting, too. I just realized why you had the Betrayer, too. He's a heaver of valor. I was like, wait, why don't you take Ashrak? They can't do that. He's fortitude. 
So I think now that I realize that it is a solid list, I'd say I agree with what Richard just said. That's one of the tricks people forget about the Spider Queen is you have one of the biggest slingshots in the game and you can just flick your broodling to touch any shooting. So shooting isn't a concern in this scenario. I would say because the betrayer is a caster, this is the only time I would forfeit the bat swarm. Because he's 35 points, that could either unlock more dudes with the betrayer just to hide and add that body count for breaking. Because the Bat Swarm does half the fight value, but I've played the Queen enough. When you have a caster, if he just transfix a dude, you don't even have to strike. That might is just to smack a dude. And in my opinion, most competent players, like again, Richard and Charles here are very competitive. If they played against each other, they know the Bat Swarm trick. So it'd be hard to get that combo off with the Bat Swarm or the Queen on. So I think dropping the bat swarm is the only change I would make because it's 35 points to get random bodies to maybe bump up that break point and hide on an objective while your betrayer and the whole spider horde runs forward and just, like Charles said, just be aggressive, punch through the armor, and then break your opponent. That's really an interesting point about dropping the bat swarm. I guess with only 18 models, it is a little bit scary, a little bit alarming at 600 points. Do you guys think this synergy works best at this? Because... I was afraid to go higher because because it's a yellow alliance, I can only have a maximum of 15 spiders in my army. So I guess we have a new hero coming out in Defense of the North, Razgoosh, that can also take spiders. But besides the possibility of including Razgoosh in here, I maxed out at 15 spiders. And so like this list would not be as good in, in like 800 points. I would probably have to ally in some sort of heroic march because I think I can get away with it at lower points. But... Do you think this list would be better in lower points? Because at the same time, Betrayer is so expensive. Like, would he get his value at lower points? I'm just wondering. So I think in regards to the March, you don't need March. After playing Spiders, honestly, you can abuse the terrain so much because the line of sight blocking, the size of the Spiders, and the just how fast they go with the swift movement. So I think March can be negated just from the get-go. I think the list, you are restricted to 15 Giant Spiders. But I'll be honest, having more than 12 is more than enough if you just use them right and you're not just letting them die. Maybe at higher points to make the Betrayer more quote-unquote efficient, throw him on that fell beast just so now he's like the spider queen. He can be a huge threat. On on horse, he's decent, but once on the fell beast, you have to treat him with some respect or he might hurl you back or just knock down that other hero, so... Yeah, I mean, I think this is a bit of a cheesy list. So not saying it won't work, but I find cheesy lists usually work better at lower points because, you know, your opponents won't usually have the tools to deal with it. So, yeah, you can kind of do whatever you want. <laughs> okay, next let's go over our first 800 points list. Richard, whenever you're ready. Okay, so I was very tempted to bring in Moria once again. But, you know, having done that too many times already in the last couple episodes, I think I'm going to switch it up a little bit. I'm going to ally in with Mordor as well. So this is a, but I like to think it's done a little bit differently here. So as my leader, I have the Shadow Lord on Felbeast leading Morgul Knight with Banner and four Morgul Knights. In my second Warband, I have the Mouth of Sauron again leading three Morgul Knights. And in my third warband, I have a mortar catapult with additional crew. And in my last warband, I have the spider queen leading three giant spiders and a bat swarm. So I only have 19 models at 799 points. But this is an essentially all cavalry list. 
or all move 10 plus list aside from the mortar catapult. And I guess my thinking is against a cavalry or a two attack spider list, you know, the biggest weakness is usually, you know, bunched up formations or battle lines where, you know, they stack on uh, spears and pikes with banners, then they get more dice than you and they outroll you. But with the mortar catapult, I think that will force the opponent to spread out. And if not, then I'm going to have some juicy hits. So it's kind of like a pick your poison. And I think once the force is spread out, it would be kind of easy pickings for my fast moving mobile force, which hits very, very hard because, you know, the spiders hit hard. Morgul Knights with the lances hit hard. They all have terror. Like I said before, that makes it a lot harder to charge them, even if it's a small force. I got double casters in Malthasaron and Shadow Lord. So a lot of Transfix is throwing out there to immobilize the big heroes. And then, yeah, I got Banner, double monsters in the Fell Beast and the Spider Queen. I think I just have a lot of tools. Yeah, what do you guys think of this list? Just a minor correction first. Um, I think you have 20 models because the Catapult comes with three orcs and a troll. And then you're adding a fourth orc, right? So I think you're at 20, which brings your break point up by one. It's still really low, but 20 models at 800 points, uh, <laughs> definitely better than 19. I think it's a really cool idea because you're right, like a catapult really changes, it forces your enemy to, to change their formation, even if they're blinding light. And like, I think the Morgul Knights usually are not seen very much in competitive lists, but this is a scenario where they can do like pretty well. Like you said, if you're getting a lot of one-on-one combats or even two-on-one. I'm just wondering if like if the Shadow Lord is my number one pick as like your main hero. I think your Immortal Knights will need the protection from shooting for sure, especially when your numbers are so low. But I'm also thinking that it might be pretty interesting if you took like the Tainted, for example. Again, this is like someone who likes cheese, right? The Tainted prevents heroes from using their stand fast. So I'm thinking, oh, maybe you can like synergize that with severed heads, you know, but... That's a different list, Charles. I'm not taking the Golden King. Forget what I said. This this list is about the Spider Queen and the Morgul Knights. I think the Shadow Lord is a great pick. It's definitely the safer one, considering your model count. I haven't mentioned this, but you have the Heroic March from the Mouth of Sauron, too. So you can get where you need to. I don't know if there's anything that I, could, I would change in this list. For the strategy you want to go for, I think it's pretty spot on. My only question is, I don't know how this would like actually play out because it's so it's so like hard to imagine 20 models at 800 points of just Cav and beasts from Mirkwood. I like the whole list except actually the catapult because my thought is this: you have a caster, you have the queen, and you have the march. Those are fantastic Cav heroes. I love the Morgul knights. I love the spiders. I don't like the catapult. And I don't like the bat swarm for this very reason. This is the first time I'll say, because everyone's so mobile now, and I know Richard had mentioned that he's worried about the spear supports and the banner. You're so mobile, I've played in my denizens, you can literally wait for turn or two, wrap around just outside their charge range, and then you engage. So you pull away the spear supports and everything, and now it's all equal fight. And you love those battle lines because now they're all going to be trapped and knocked down. So I actually would drop the catapult and the bat swarm for Shelob. Just because now you have a caster, you have March, everyone's mobile as hell. So you have a, the Spider Queen, you have Shelob, you have the Wraith for magic support, and you have the Mouth with more transfixing. So both guys can transfix for both giant spiders. 
your whole army's cav running around lancing people or killing them with little spider hands. And then the bat swarm, 35 points. Mm, get more Morgul Knights in there. <laughs> you don't need the bat swarm. Just send more bodies in there. So besides that, I actually do love the list. I think it's awesome. I'd love to see it on the table because it's a small elite ball of death. Just my opinion, I would just drop the catapult, go full, grab Shelob, throw her in there. Now she's a, like a bowling ball of death at D7 and you, you can't move her because the Spider Queen's over there and all the Morgul Knights are, you know, moving around. I think the issue is I don't think he has the numbers to wrap around because even if he drops the catapult for it's worth eight spiders, even if you have eight more spiders in this list, I think some battle lines are just going to be too large. You're going to be stretched so thin and... Each Morgul Knight is around the same points as a spider, right? It's like maybe like one or two points cheaper. So, um, But you forget almost. Charles' progeny. You get three more bodies on the table. So, Yeah, I'm just so, saying that uh, the Catapult is something that not only for its damage output, but it forces your opponent to play differently. I think that's the main reason he's going for okay. this uh, pick. But I do understand that, yeah, if he were to drop the Catapult, he would have a lot more models. But then his opponent can just bunch up all of their models and they would still almost have twice as much as him, if not more. Can I just ask you, um, have you ever played against a Mortar Catapult? I played against one and someone took two of those wraiths and they kept draining courage on my model. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. So it was, it was very annoying. I, so I was like new to the game and he took two of those generic wraiths. I'm like, why is he just draining courage? I'll let it go. And my guy ran away. I'm like, yeah, this game sucks. <laughs> so... <laughs> okay, so you you were cheesed, but yeah, but Charles is right. Like I think the reason why I took the mortar catapult, it, it's nice to get a couple like kills here and there, but it's mostly to force the opponent to play differently and change their tactics. Because I think your suggestion would work as well. Like just you know a really hard hitting cab death ball. But I think you know people have seen that kind of style before, maybe in like a, a riders of Theden kind of list, right? So they'll just be like, okay, they might know how to approach it and how they would want to play it. And I'm not saying it wouldn't work, but I think what my catapult here is doing is kind of like, okay, now in the moment, they got to start deciding, you know, should I be bunching up my guys? And if they spread out, like, you know, with this kind of list, it's kind of over. Like, you know, like you said before, like you're charging in with your spiders and, and they don't even have spear supports, then it's like, yeah, you're going to be taking them out left and right. No, that, that is the right way to do it. I think it's just very funny to see a 20-man little army. And I, yeah, at the Mortal Catapult, I guess it, it is a threat because if you want to engage it, there's a there's a troll guarding it all times, too. Okay, our last list of the day is from our special guest, Young Duke. Why don't you go over your 800-point list? This one will be different from the rest as it is a peer list. Uh, so, guys, my Dark Denizens list is the first warband is, of course, the Spider Queen. She is leading 10 giant spiders, 2 bat swarms, and 1 fell warg. The next warband is 2 murkwood spiders. The next warband is 2 giant spiders. The next warband are 2 more giant spiders. The next warband are 2 more giant spiders. The fourth warband are 2 more giant spiders. The next warband are 5 giant spiders. And the last warband of 5 giant spiders. So you're at 34 models, and the army is at 793 points. This army is legal because in the Dark Denizens army bonus, warbands led just by spiders have to be two minimum. And if you want fellow wargs, you need six, and then mixed have to be ten. So that's the army list. Uh, my question is, how come the last two warbands are five giant spiders? Why did you not do five more warbands? 
So the idea of having two five-man warbands is they're like my actual warbands. So the concept of the list is this is what took a lot of people by surprise when they first saw it. Some people thought I was actually cheating at the event. But by having so many of these little drops, I know some of the issues people have is like, oh, you forced my hand by putting my queen on this position. I'll just counter deploy. Well, when you have what I had, seven or eight warbands, by the time I finish putting down the fourth two-man giant spider warband, my opponent probably put the whole army out. And so now I take my time. And the two five-man warbands are for those maelstrom missions. Those multiple two-man warbands are good for getting back to the main line or grabbing objectives. But those two five-man warbands are there for when they do come on, they have enough spiders to force a whole enemy warband to turn around and engage them. If it was just a two-man spider unit behind you out of a 12 fortitude hero warband, he'd probably send four to five warriors back there and call it a day. But once there's five giant spiders, I've seen every opponent turn a whole warband around just to engage them. So that's why I have two of the five man for any maelstrom or just to serve as an actual warband in this army. I understand the advantage of micro warbands because then you can put them down first and then wait for your opponent to deploy their whole army before you put down the rest of your army. But having so many micro warbands, like have there been games where it just completely screwed you in maelstrom where like your spiders were scattered everywhere? Or do you think that with their movement and their swift movement bonus, it doesn't matter? So the game I'll take from Nova, we played Divide and uh, Is that the one where your opposite corners are deploying you need to get back to the three? Yeah, so in that mission, my armies were split, right? And the beautiful thing about it is Denizens without March just moved so fast that I literally reshifted my whole army back to one part of the Agmore opponent, and I almost crushed one warband. So in other Maelstrom missions I've played, it does seem at first, oh, you know, all my warbands are scattered about. You don't have might to move it. The most important warband is the queen. As long as she is protected, every other micro warband can move their way down to her. Uh, I played the mission, which was the four quarters and the middle is a dead zone. That mission, I love playing denizens because I want those micro warbands to be everywhere where you just can't hunt them down. They're enough to deal with small individual characters. So I'd say in Maelstrom missions, from the games I've played, I've had no issue with the movement. And in regards to maybe trapping my base size because it's so large, in those games, I do eventually spread around my whole opponent. And I'll wait two to three turns just deploying, moving, and waiting until every model can have a chance to charge in. And I'll just surround my opponent. Of course, some bases just can't fit. At that point, I just hold them back as like reserve units in case one spider dies. One trick that my opponents really hated was, let's say the initial wave of 14 spiders went in with the queen, seven of them lost a wound. Next turn, I had one priority, I would switch them. So the new healthy spiders would take the place of the wounded spiders, and then they would go after objectives or like trackers or a lower like threat model because they're going to die soon. Yeah, that, that's actually a really good point. That's like insane micro tactics. Like, I don't know, it reminds me of in StarCraft or, you know, like the Protoss, they have like these shields. So you wear down their shields, you get through a little bit into their actual health, but then you pull them back and then their shield like recharges. I think same thing in Halo too, right? I think it's having multiple wounds on a warrior is always a lot harder to kill than you think. I think it can be definitely misleading. I experienced the same thing versus Charles's half trolls as well. 
Like, you think one wound doesn't equal the kill. So, like, you know, usually, you know, on a one-wound model, you, that one wound, you take it out, and they just seem to have less guys, less zone of control. But dealing that one wound to, like, a half-troll or a spider it doesn't do anything. Yeah, so one concept that people bring up all the time are spiders are D3, and, you know, they'll die in combat. When I play against a normal human, not a hunter orc model or a berserker, any model who generically has one dice attack, which is bulk of the game. So when you have a shield and a spear support attacking the spider, let's say the elf warrior and his Numenorian friend win the fight, they both need four to wound. A four is you know, 50-50, you know, it's a hand of fate. Usually they'll do a single wound. Okay, my spider is still in the fight. Next combat, we'll roll it again. If I win, I'm most likely killing the front guy. So that's why I like the spiders more than basic warriors. Like Richard just said, once you wound my spider, I don't care because I have one more chance to win another fight. If I was any other model, I take a wound, I'm just dead. That's it. So the 50-50 comes from people saying, oh, he's D3. They still need a four. And there have been so many times where I've seen someone win the fight, couldn't roll a single four. I come back, I kill the shield guy next to her. I kill the spear support. Okay, the spider killed two high elves. He's going to help the next spider fight now. And now that spider will go peel off the spear support from another fight. And now, like Richard mentioned, those one-on-ones are what spiders like because your opponent has to shield or he's going to risk just dying again. And once that happens, it just always rolls. Once you punch a hole through your opponent's battle line, that's it. Once they start wrapping around you, you're going to lose a bulk of your warrior models. Yeah, and just to add a bit to the rolling to wound, like rolling double fours in that one instance of combat is harder to do than rolling a five or a six to wound. So even though the spider's only defense three, like it's almost as good as a defense six model when you're fighting strength three. Moving a little bit to our topic today, the spider queen, how does the spider queen what kind of role does it play in this army? Because it's your only source of might and it's your only like big threat. It must have to do the heavy lifting, right? And like, how do you manage that when it's your only hero? Yeah, so this is where I guess to go full circle. If you're going to play Dark Denizens, you have to have a little bit of a high risk mentality because, you know, the might is only three and that's all you're ever going to get unless you play, was it Lords of Battle or whatever it is, once you get might back for killing heroes. So for denizens, my train of thought is every game you play, you are automatically giving up one VP for your leader being wounded. I don't care how well you play, your queen is there, she has no fate, she's taking a wound. Once you accept that, the game becomes much easier. The way I play a spider queen, it depends on whether they have a ring wraith or a caster or a shooting army. At the fake Nova, which was a tournament at the same venue, I played against two Betrayer South Harad gun lines. They both had Suladon. One of them had Raza. It's a tough list. One had Mahud, King with the Camels. Those games, the Queen will never spawn a Broodling because my tactic against all Harbinger models who have casting, I let them throw the first spell on me and I will use all three will to resist it. My train of thought is I'm probably going to resist it and I might get a single six back for one more turn. So after I resist the spell using all my will, that turn I'll call a combat and my goal is to kill four to five warrior models. If I achieve that, the queen did her job. I hit a small hole through my opponent. You can transfix her if you want. You can do what you want for her. The army's in position. 
So against magic casters, it is an actual suicide model. I am banking on rolling a single six out of the three will I resist, get one more will back, try to kill four to five models, and then that's the game. I'm just going to keep pushing forward. When it comes to other missions, if there's no casters, my queen does not have to do anything. I usually let all of my spiders get in position, charge in. Then I let my spider queen look for good hurls, like a good angle. She'll go in and just hurl down the line, trying to get as many spear supports out the way. Sometimes when I play the spider queen, if I feel like they're too high defense, D7, D8 Iron Hills, or Army of the Dead. I recently played over four games of Army of the Dead back-to-back -back with denizens. In that scenario, the Spider Queen, that's the beauty of her. Being Strength 6, Monstrous Charge, Venom, she'll kill anything in the game she'll touch because she can reroll it. So in those games, she has to destroy all those high defense dudes because the spiders, even if they're Strength 5, rerolling ones, they have a hard time. So the Queen against Arm of the Dead, against Iron Hills, she will go in, call a combat, and kill three to four models in the first combat. If I do that two times, I've killed eight models. That's a huge chunk out of these D8 armies because they're usually small. So once the queen hits, I'd say, 10 kills, I'm comfortable letting her die. She did her job. The whole army can just clean up. At that point, I think I would have killed their leader just by the amount of spiders coming at them. I've had a spider kill the Tainted in combat. I won the fight. I rolled two sixes and he just died. So I'm like, oh, yeah, we did it. So when you play Denizens, you can't assume your queen will live. You just have to accept the fact that I'm going to get a major victory by owning all the objectives, breaking you, but you killed my leader, and I also killed yours. From what I've played so far, that's typically the trend of Dark Denizens. You just have to accept my queen is the only might source. She's going to die. But like Richard and Charles mentioned earlier, your army is full of multi-wound, strength 5, movement 10, fight 4 monsters, basically, like little spiders, right? So even if your queen dies, you still have 33 models who all are able to fight in combat and kill a model. So I'm never actually worried when my queen dies. I've had a game where the queen died turn 2. I just really rolled bad. She was trapped because of big base, and she died. At first, I was semi-concerned, but after like 20 minutes, not really. I just realized my whole army is literally eating through all of your warriors. Sure, I didn't wound your leader. I didn't kill him. But you shattered. I didn't break. I owned most of the objectives due to my movement. So I was fine with that trade. Very interesting. I think the way you're describing how the queen is used is very different from any of the alliance lists we've gone over today, just because it's like it's such a center of your army. Right. And like you're kind of relying on her to do a lot. Meanwhile, like for an alliance list, generally they're allied in as like a second, third threat, and they're usually not the leader. Just like two completely different ways of using the queen. So next we're going to rank these lists to see uh, which ones are our favorites from today. So there are four lists to choose from. Do you guys think there's a clear winner on the strongest list today? I'd actually have to say Richards because after I hadn't worth thought about it, when I play Denizens, my army's really weak. But the Morgul Knights have that extra defense. They bring terror. They're higher courage, too. I've had too many games where my dinky Courage 3 Spider ran away. So the Morgul Knights having the higher courage and having the magic support and the blinding light actually makes, in my eyes, a list that I would actually consider maybe making and playing just because it's 20 models. So it's pretty achievable. So in my eyes, I do think Richard's list as a competitive event, I would probably take. But you have to accept the Mortar Catapult with open arms as well. I, I will accept the Mortar Catapult <laughs> with open arms. <laughs> 
I, I wouldn't change the list. I think for one game, I think I have the models for it. I actually, besides the catapult, I don't own that model. I think I'm willing to try the list because I, I do think it does throw most opponents off by bringing that extra artillery, the magic, and then the march. Even though I've been professing you don't need march, it'd be funny if my army literally is even 10 times closer to you now and you have to think, what, what are you going to do? Yeah, I have a hard time deciding this. The main reason is whenever I've played or against a Spider Queen, it's always swingy. I know the Catapult sometimes that way too, which makes it even more swingy. Like sometimes Catapult does nothing and other times it snipes your enemy's leader in one turn. So I can see Richard's list having that potential. But I also like can see Yarn um, Duke's list of uh, pure denizens being pretty good. And generally, you know, I think it would have an edge because in most metas, in most communities, it's not an army that's seen at all. So I think it might catch a lot of players by surprise. And, and I think in Yong's um, experience, it kind of has the way he's played it. So I also think that one can be really good as well. So I kind of almost want to put them equal. But right now, I can't really decide a winner between the two. Yeah, mine is is pretty swingy. It's like you're either going for first place or wooden spoon. No in between. So I think I will give the edge to Yong just because his list is the only one with actual results here. <laughs> and and he's actually had good results with it. So I think that's worth the nod. I will say that in some convenient alliance lists, a Spider Queen can build like a top table list. Just obviously here today, the lists that we brought were having more fun. You know, it's maybe a little bit goofy or like more cheese oriented. I think maybe Yong's is more consistent. It has like more of a reliable strategy, I guess. Although I just had a thought here. I wouldn't really want to play his list in Assassination. I think that'd be really, really scary. I actually ran in that issue at uh, at the event in uh, September. It was assassination. I had one model, and I said, you know what? If that's the case, you're never going to touch her. <laughs> so I just hit her while the whole army fought. <laughs> so that, that's the one game she hit in the, the furthest corner. I said, you're not going to touch her. You're not going to see her ever in this game. <laughs> so. Okay, so I guess we'll put Richard's list in second place. And so it's down to my betrayal list or Ian's Shelob Spider Queen list. <laughs> I think uh, yours has more of a identity. I think Ian's list has an identity crisis. I don't know what it's trying to prove, but n- not not shaming him. I love Ian. I love his list, but this one was, it's on a plane of existence I can't comprehend yet. And maybe if he was on, he could explain and justify what his thought process was. No, no, this is the perfect time to shame him. He's not here to defend himself. That's what we do here. <laughs> he probably wouldn't even listen to this episode, so it's fine. <laughs> you all terrible people. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's move on to our open topic today. We'll be talking about some terrain tactics. So in our open topic today, we'll be talking about terrain. So I think that terrain is a huge part of the game, and I think a lot of strategy in the game is based around what the terrain on the table looks like. And uh, I don't believe that we've covered this subject on this podcast before, so we're going to give it a try and just uh, go over some strategies and tips, and it'll be interesting, I think. Also, just think that it's a good pairing with the Spider Queen today. We didn't go into too much detail, but we did mention that she and also the spiders in the list can ignore terrain, so that'll be interesting. So I was going to divide this topic into phases of the game. 
So the first part of the discussion is when both players deploy. So what do you guys think about and look for on a table when you're starting a game and you're deploying and picking your tables, picking which side you want to start, assuming that you have priority? What makes you pick like a certain spot to start? You want the honest reason or like the perfect world reason? <laughs> uh, give your honest reason first. I'm too lazy to walk around the table, so I'll just settle where I was. So. <laughs> and uh, the perfect world reason is if it's a shooting army, I will choose the side that is advantageous for them. So if they can abuse it by putting guys in an unreachable location, it may not benefit me, but I will take that side because I don't want them to deal with it. So I look out for terrain pieces that can either be abused or I can abuse. So that's what I would usually do. So. Yeah, I think a big part of it for me is, depending on the scenario, I think we can all agree roughly there's a bunch of scenarios that require rushing to the middle and doing battle there, or rushing across the board. And then there's the other set, which is more like you want to set more defensively on your half. So I think that's a big thing to keep an eye out for, you know, just roughly putting the scenarios into one of these groups, one of these two groups. And which will allow you to, you know, if it's a more defensive scenario, then choose the terrain that would support that versus if it's a mad dash to the middle or across the board, you generally want to pick a side where it's easy to deploy more open ground and also maybe a clear run to the middle. So on the opposite side, too, it's actually really tough if you put your opponent in one of the scenarios that you need to get to the middle with a lot of like, you know, rocks and trees where they can't maybe shove their whole entire battle line together as a whole and they're forced to break it up, that will actually make it a lot harder for your opponent as well. Oh, and also, of course, um, you know, if you're versing like a shooting list as well, then that kind of logic might need to be switched around a little bit. And maybe you do want to take the side with a little bit more obstruction while you move forward so you don't get shot down. Yeah, the scenario definitely is very important because I don't know about other communities, but um, in in our community on the Canadian West Coast, we play around 30% of the tables covered in terrain. So it's actually a big portion and a lot of times it obscures like shooting and stuff. So I think one thing to note is like, look at where the objectives are as well. Like, okay, if, if I'm a heavy cav army, maybe I don't want to grab the objectives that are like in a lot of forests. Maybe start near the ones that are easier to, for you to capture. Maybe look at your army compared to your opponents. If you're the one with higher numbers and you're trying to surround them and trap them, maybe pick a location where you want the battle to happen where you would have the room to flank instead of like fighting at a choke. So like it depends what your opponent has. And basically, like Richard said, imagine where you think the battle will take place and see if there's anything that you can do to give yourself a favorable start. Either you could get there first or get to that location with more models. Sometimes it's hard to predict and you might end up being wrong. So like, for example, if you're playing recon and your opponent, their warbands ends up turning up later and the main fight doesn't happen exactly where you think it is, you won't be able to predict everything. But I think that um, you can look at the terrain and you, you're basically like predicting and trying to use the environment in your favor. So quick question for Young, like in your community over on the East Coast, have you noticed like any pattern in terrain at events or 
does it come down to TO? Because like here, some TOs like symmetrical tables. So like terrain is pretty even on both sides of the board, but then other events, they're not. It actually makes a big difference which side of the board you choose because one side might have more terrain and you're more disadvantaged if you set up there. How do you define like the terrain in, in your community? So I'd say here, everyone knows who John McConnell is. He's the one that provides a lot of terrain. And I think he's inspired many, many other TOs here to kind of follow in suit. Like everyone has a like town terrain piece. Everyone has like an Amon Hen piece. So there's a similar theme. So I'd say actually on our coast, we do have a lot of terrain. And this is why I, I know it's not tactically sound, but I do encourage Elven Cloaks especially at Nova, especially at Ashburn and some events here. There are so many small fences, so many random crates and stuff like that. That's why I encourage the Galadrium elves, the pajama elves, because you know the terrain setting will be like this. The elven cloak becomes way more valuable. I mean, my friend Steven and my local group knows this. I abuse the terrain. I put all my elven pajama elves barely obscured by the terrain, and now you just can't shoot them because they have the elven cloak. So our meta here is quite terrain heavy, and we actually do have the terrain of the two Argonauts, uh, and they have the water in between, and that one is a terrible board to play on because the giant water feature in the middle, unless you tell your opponent it's open ground, I believe one game they didn't specify, so you had people drowning left and right on it. Uh, I don't know why they didn't discuss further. And then at Nova, I put on a Lake Town board, we were not told until an hour into the game that all the ice and water feature was considered frozen. You can walk on it. So I ended up having to fight on the planks of wood. And it was one of the hardest games of my life because they're so narrow. You only can fit two or three models you know, in each co corridor. And if, if you set a cave troll in one corridor, you have to kill that model before proceeding forward. So yeah, our meta, very terrain dependent which encourages people to be creative. I've seen Gulavars fly to places that no one else can touch, but he can reach. I've seen my friend Scott played against an elf player who put all of his archers into one tower and Scott blocked it with one model and no one could come down. Thus, he won the game. So I'd say here, terrain is <laughs> a huge factor. And whether you like it or not, you have to read the rules of obstacles, fighting through it, jump, climb, test, drowning. I think you brought up a good point. It's really important to go over like areas of the board that might raise some debates or questions. It's good to make that clear because when you look at, for example, like a water feature, like what looks like shallow water to you might look like deep water to someone else, right? And the rules are completely different for those two. Going over like what each part of the board is at the start of the game makes a big difference. And also, yeah, um, the other thing you brought up about war gear, which this would just lead into the next segment, which is movement and shooting. I think when you're moving and, and you're shooting, you definitely want to uh, take advantage of any special rules you have or special rules or war gear that your opponent has that makes them at a disadvantage. So as I said earlier, our tables locally are pretty packed with terrain. So a lot of boards, if you're fighting against like Mumak, Chariots, or even just an army with a lot of large base models uh, you can move and kind of just stand behind like choke points or difficult terrain a lot of the time that will really mess up like your opponent's battle formation or in a lot of situations they'll lose their charge bonus because of what's written in the rules with difficult terrain so i think it's really important to pick up on that well i would say uh one point for terrain then is i think maybe there's like a note for tos 
they should, in a way, kind of give an idea of how much terrain is actually at the event. Because I guess it is true, in a tactical game, you should be prepared for anything thrown at you. However, like if, let's say you play a Mumak or a heavy Kandish chariot list, the event you go to has 50% terrain, or even more than that, what are you going to do? The whole event at that point for you is an uphill struggle and potentially a bust because you can't even use your rules. I know that that's a tactical part, right? You take a small gambit. But I think then, in a way, a word to TOs is, you know, maybe at least give an impression of what players should expect. Like, if you go there thinking 33% and there's like 5% and you made a list dependent on Elven Cloaks, I mean, then you're screwed again. So I think all these elements are important to the game because, again, in SBG, the game is so dynamic, right? Terrain is such a huge feature to the, the whole game. War gear adds a huge element. So, you know, terrain is a key aspect to tactics. And so I think, you know, understanding what you're going to see will help a lot in even your list building and choosing the faction you're going to take. I agree. It's definitely something as the player you should be aware of when you're constructing your list. But I think it's kind of on the onus of the TO. I personally feel like to make at least most of the units, most of the models playable, you know, like I think you have to consider... You know, of course, we don't love the idea of a table that is too sparse, but I think that's probably the better alternative than too far in the other direction where, you know, I have seen, you know, maybe TOs get a bit too excited and go the other direction and be like, okay, I'm going to make a, basically a diorama, you know, and like it's tough to play on because if it's like, you know, 60, 70% terrain, then it actually makes a lot of models no longer competitively viable. Yeah, I think one of the early days of our group, we had a Helm's Deep Gate in one of the one of the gaming tables, and it's just like, yeah, if you're gonna choose to deploy, you're obviously gonna deploy on the side of the board with the gate, not the side without the gate and the wall. <laughs> uh, it's an extreme example, but but yeah, like terrain, most TOs know that it's important to make them kind of fair on both sides. But like in situations where one side is slightly like advantageous, this is kind of what you should look out for and try to take that if you have the first choice in the side. To add on to uh, shooting, I just want to bring up an example because uh, I was playing an opponent at an event a few weeks ago and he had a model holding an objective and breakthrough and I was shooting at him with my crossbows and then after took the model off the objective and killed him. I noticed that the model was holding an objective that was sitting right in front of a door. And later on, I talked about it with my opponent, and uh, we were trying to figure out what he could have done different. And I said, well, you could have laid down, but I had a clear shot, so I probably could still have shot at him. But he could have also moved behind the door, and he still would have been within three inches of the objective. And then I would have had him to take in the ways. So I guess like as a good player that's defensive and being shot at, you could find ways to use terrain. So look around you as you're moving towards your engagement and see like what you could use to obstruct and uh, create in the ways, especially if your opponent has like a siege weapon without volley fire, like a Isengard Ballista, they have to take in the way tests. And generally you don't want one of those things to hit you, but you can use in the ways either your own models or terrain to make it as hard as possible to give your opponent as many rolls as possible to hit their intended target. I think as the person doing the shooting, if you're the one with the bows, then maybe deploy your bowmen in a place where you can use terrain to protect you. So maybe put your archers like in front of like a wooded area where there's difficult terrain or an obvious one is like a barrier, like a fence. 
which obviously means that return fire would have to take in the ways. And also it'd be harder to uh, charge you as well uh, as you'll be defending a barrier. So those things like you can keep in mind and just be aware that like there are things around the table that you can use to make things harder for your opponent, whether you're the one that's being shot at or you're the one shooting. So, yeah, the Murbert Spiders, they have swift movement. They can go anywhere they want. Well, one event against my good friend Tom Clucci, I uh, found a small little boulder that was flat on top. There were two of them, and I had two Merkwood Spiders. So what I did was they went on top of them near these objectives, and they acted as turrets. So I couldn't be charged because I fit perfectly on this rock. I measured to go up. It was like four inches up, so, you know, the beautiful height. But I'd shoot my web eight inches down the whole time with two of them. I never moved, depending on fives. I paralyzed Immerhill. He used all of his fate. Uh, I paralyzed two of his Cav, and so I acted as like turrets. So I'd say not only to spiders, but for most models in the game, use the terrain to your advantage. If you know you can do stuff, like Moria Goblins, they have Cave Dweller. They can climb up stuff really easily. So you see a cool little vantage point for your Moria Goblin archers, use it. This applies to, you know, anything. I mean, Richard here plays the Watcher, right? So if your opponent didn't specify and you see a water feature, goddamn, it's a water feature. I'm going to get the rules for it and I'm going to abuse it. Like, it, you, we should have talked earlier. So, like... Yeah, like, fountains count. <laughs> yeah, it's a, well, it's a water feature. Whether or not I fit in it, that's a different story. But um, on a serious note, though, like for Elven Cloaks, when you make your army list, just look at what rules they have, even though I don't run them personally. The Galadrum Horses, they have what, I think, Woodland Creature or Fleet Foot, whatever it is, they get the full movement in a wood, right? So make sure you're actually aware of these small, obscure rules, because at events like Nova and here locally, we do have so much terrain that you will actually get to use these abilities. So what you're saying is if you pay attention to terrain really well, you can spam Easterling Acolytes because <laughs> they're all, their special rules, I think, are all terrain related. What I'm saying is if you know the rules, you can abuse anything in this game. <laughs> I mean, I feel like many people know Richard's escapades of how he makes a list, how he plays. So he's a prime example <laughs> of what to abuse in this great game. Yeah, so... Yong's going to hate me for this one, but I think there's a rule, unfortunately, where you can't jump off cliffs with your own models to kill your own guys. But, you know, if if there is a terrain with uh, deep water and you have some heavy armor, I think that's also a good way to, if you need the game to end, ASAP. That's just a little trick. So, rules of written, yes, if you walk in, you'll drown. But that brings into question your honor and integrity as a SVG player. So that's a totally different topic for a totally different podcast. The final segment we're going to go over is the fight phase. So I mentioned a little bit of this earlier, but you can definitely use terrain to make fights in your favor. So you kind of have to set it up with the move phase and the deployment because that kind of dictates where the majority of the combats are going to happen. But basically, if you're on a side that's playing defensive, you have less models, or you're just the one that's protecting a certain model or a certain area. So like Seize a Prize, for example, you picked up the prize, then you can use the terrain around you to try to force choke points. If your opponent has a lot more models, fighting at choke basically makes their numbers mean a lot less, in the sense you're only fighting a limited amount of combats a turn. And in contrast to that, if you're the army with more models, then you want to find areas of the table with less terrain so that you can try to flank and surround 
Or um, sometimes you want to fight in difficult terrain. What are your guys' thoughts about fighting in like a forest or something? Because I feel like fighting in difficult terrain, it's harder to get a surround. So I feel like it's better for the defensive player. Yeah, I think it's a pretty common tactic for the scenarios that you get to place your objectives and actually actively choose. I think it is common to put it in some sort of difficult terrain. And obviously that's even better when you have a special rule like, um, you know, woodland creature and, you know, for the elves, you know, if you have some sort of wood, then you're obviously at an even greater advantage. But I agree. I think generally as the defense, especially if you have uh, archers, I think you're definitely at an advantage in difficult terrain and having the enemy run through that at you. And keep in mind that if it is an objective as well, it kind of mitigates the enemy cavalry who they want to use as objective takers, but they're not able to get into difficult terrain. I would say also just be mindful of also, it can be both ways though, right? If you commit too heavily into difficult terrain, also be aware that if you want to get out, you know, you also have to not truck through it. So unless like you guys claimed, if there's an objective there, heck yeah, you know, stay there. But sometimes if your opponent's in there, maybe you can consider waiting out. This is kind of weird sounding, but if your opponent, for the people who are not defending the attacker, if it's not necessarily objective-based and they're hogging that difficult terrain or forest, sometimes you have to actually just use the opponent's own like emotions against them. So it, they're going to assume you're going to engage them where they want to. Cool. Some opponents may not like it if you say, hey, I'm not going to move or I'm just going to move an inch or two. Eventually, they might lose that patience. They want the game rolling. So they'll have to now truck through the forest or difficult terrain. Now you have the advantage because you can set up and counter, you know, attack them. That's just for the flip side for the attackers. Yeah, you both bring up some really good points. Difficult terrain is especially good defense against cavalry heavy armies because they lose the bonus. They lose their charge bonus. And I think they reduce their quarter movement. So a 10-inch cavalry will go down to 2.5 inches, which is a little under like a 6-inch infantry movement that's halved. So all of a sudden, mounted cavalry armies are not as powerful on tables with dense terrain because as soon as they move into one of those difficult terrain areas, they fight worse than your single infantry because they lose a bonus. They're bigger bases, so you can engage more models against them. It's a very bad day for them. And uh, what Yongduk brought up as well, where uh, you can really use that uh, psychologically to your effect as well. Sometimes when you're fighting in difficult terrain, your opponent might lose track of how many turns it actually takes for them to get to the objective. Because you see like a small area of wooded terrain, you don't think that it's going to take you four turns to walk through it. And if you're stuck fighting one model or two models, sometimes people take a second to register that movement is halved and they'll think, OK, I can move through it in two turns. But then they remember it's difficult terrain. And then before they know it, the time's out and they haven't captured their objective. One combat in a difficult terrain area is so much time. It is so much time spent. Even if your model doesn't completely enter the difficult terrain, just having part of their base on it, it already slows them down. So definitely is good in like a way to trap an opponent as well to, to kind of use up the turns that they have to get their vps there's a random point too um it's like bat swarms too that's one thing i as a mortar player when i was first playing i realized i made a lot of mistakes my opponents would use the forest and you know if the bat swarm flies into it he's not flying out he will literally waddle two to three inches out of there sorry it's half so he's only got 1.5 inches out of there 
So being aware of also what your opponent's units, like what type they are, like Charles just said for Cav and all that stuff, just being aware of even flyers can really change the flow of the game too. So that bat swarm no longer is a threat if you decide to park in the forest with your like superhero. They don't want to risk that bat swarm going in there now. Right, that's a good point. So models with a fly special rule, I believe they have to use their normal movement in forests. So basically you have to land and then walk. And most of them move like three inches, right? So it takes away their almost like the best thing about the model. But aside from forests, I think fly is one of the best special rules in the game when it comes to terrain because it allows you to ignore pretty much everything. Otherwise, as long as you can land on the piece of terrain that you want to sit on, you can just be anywhere. I think swift movement comes close. I'm sure Young Duke has experienced this, but spiders crawling up and down like a house and just rocks, everything. And I think that's one of the strengths of the Denzins Mirkwood and this profile we were talking about today, the Spider Queen. She can move around like any sort of terrain piece. She can walk over any sort of terrain piece, rocks, logs, and just completely ignore them, which makes her super flexible and also just really hard for your opponent to defend because uh, they can't use terrain to protect them like they normally can against many enemies. Is there anything else you guys want to add? You should um, all convince Richard to take a green alliance. I think that's the only thing I can request on this podcast. The time has passed. We're not talking about lists anymore. You'll have to come back a third time to convince me. Damn. <laughs> well, thank you so much for um, coming on to talk to us about the Spider Queen today and also talk about terrain. Just to give a quick shout out, you can find Young Duke's work on Instagram. Just search Kim's Painting Corner. And he's also on YouTube. He has some pretty cool battle reports. His channel, I believe, is just his name, Young Duke Kim. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's always a pleasure talking to you guys. All right, thanks to all our listeners for listening and look forward to the next episode of Into the West podcast. Mm-hmm.